Pakistan is partially responsible, um, not for primarily causing or exacerbating climate change, uh, but for its own lack of climate resilient infrastructure in place to tackle these climate-induced catastrophes. More than 30 billion in economic losses for a country like Pakistan, it's not, it's just not possible for Pakistan to mobilize those numbers within itself. But I will not absolve Pakistan of its own responsibility as well. And uh, fossil fuels just by itself, it comprises 86% of primary commercial energy use. And just the transition to cleaner energy is, has been estimated to cost $101 billion. And these numbers are inconceivable. This urbanization um, in centers like Lahore, Karachi have been the major cause of loss of vegetation, um, caused a number of environmental problems like air pollution. Agricultural leads are expected to drop by 50% um, by 2050. Uh, hello everyone, thank you for joining me today. My name is Norez Rana and I'm an economist for the World Bank. Today, I have with me two subject matter experts on the topic of climate change. I'll first begin by introducing Ms. Sundar Siddiqui. She's a climate change specialist uh, working at the bank, at the World Bank, and she focuses on climate adaptation and coastal resilience. Uh, thank you for joining us, Sundar. Hi, Norez. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, secondly, we have Ms. Nimra Hayat Malik. Uh, she's an environmental engineer, computer data scientist working with Amazon and helping them achieve their net zero carbon goals by 2040. Uh, thank you for joining us, Nimra. Hey, excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So as uh, all of you must have rightly guessed, today we'll be speaking about climate change and the catastrophe that Pakistan recently went through uh, less than a year ago. Um, so without further ado, I'll dive right in. Um, climate change, arguably, or actually not even arguably, it is the single biggest threat that the world is facing at the moment. Um, it is a risk multiplier, and the impacts are not just limited to extreme weather situations and weather conditions, but they also encompass and they, you know, they, they tend to aggravate foods, food systems, food scarcity. They tend to cause water insecurity. They cause displacement. They're leading to refugee crisis. They lead to conflicts within countries. And there's also a very strong correlation between climate change and uh, inflation, and it's pushing people into poverty. Uh, it is, I guess, you know, and everything is happening right, uh, right now. It's not something in the future. We're living through these crises. And we don't need to look elsewhere. Like I just mentioned, we look at the events of last year. Pakistan underwent weather, extreme weather conditions. Initially, there was a heat wave that was a one in thousand year event where continuously we saw temperatures rise on average above 45 degrees Celsius. And then there were unprecedented levels of monsoon drains, uh, which led to disruptions, which actually led to complete disruption of assets, lives, livelihoods. Um, one third of the country was submerged underwater. 33 million people were impacted. Many unfortunately died. And these are huge numbers. These are bigger, greater than even the most populous countries in the world. Where let's say we're talking about Mumbai or let's say we're talking about Karachi is the entire areas, entire population just completely wiped off and displaced. So it really begs the question. It begs actually a lot of question. Why, why is this happening in Pakistan? Pakistan sadly is among the top 10 countries most vulnerable to climate change. Why is that so? Um, is that just nature's curse? Is that uh, why, where we are geographically located? Is it the topography? 
is it the making of our own policies or our own actions or is it a global phenomenon so um, nimra i'll first turn to you to just weigh in a bit briefly on the the science behind why all this is happening and you know is fox on responsible mm-hmm. yeah um that's a great question ray so let me start by answering whether pakistan is to be blamed or not uh, for the flooding that occurred last year it's it's not a straightforward yes or no answer in my opinion yes pakistan is partially responsible um not for primarily causing or exacerbating climate change uh, but for its own lack of climate resilient infrastructure in place to tackle these climate induced catastrophes that we that they're experiencing right um especially since climate models climate change models had been predicting more intense rainfalls and weather events in countries like pakistan pakistan should have been more prepared i'll dive more into this later um before jumping into that um let me just share very very high level why this phenomena is occurring um to begin life on earth depends on energy coming from the sun right animals plants land and ocean absorb the solar energy needed to survive um they absorb what's needed and reflect the rest of that back into space that's kind of how the nature how nature is supposed to be working pre-industrialization nature was in balance um this excess heat uh, was being radiated back into space co2 and methane are naturally occurring gases in the atmosphere um and they were somewhat at manageable levels however post-industrialization and burning of fossil fuels it created an imbalance in this process and we started releasing more and more carbon into the atmosphere co2 concentration methane concentrations multiplied and greenhouse gases essentially formed a blanket around the earth um and they started trapping the sun's heat instead of letting it go back into the stratosphere this has essentially led to warming of our planet we are at 1.1 degree celsius um higher temperature compared to pre-industrial era um so what's happening with this what are the effects of this um global warming as more heat trapping gases are getting pumped into the atmosphere planet temperature will increase more water will evaporate from the oceans hotter air um tends to hold more moisture as well so all of this will lead to extreme weather related events like flooding um this will lead to more heat waves like the one that um Europe experienced um more mega droughts will occur something that California has been experiencing over the last few years um there will be crop failures species extinction food production will be impacted um water insecurity will rise so overall that is these are the effects of climate change and that is what we're seeing in countries like Pakistan and elsewhere as well okay so basically it is a global phenomena and uh, i guess the the key takeaway from your description is the fact that countries who are higher ahead in the trajectory in terms of industrialization who embarked upon that you know that trajectory that journey back in the 18th 19th centuries uh, they are and should be more responsible and they've contributed towards greater carbon emissions uh, you know high income countries countries much more industrialized than those such as pakistan and you know nations which are still at the moment in the developing phase so it so when you're talking about uh, adapting uh, to these climatic and global changes obviously there's a need of investment and countries like pakistan who are also already facing a financial crisis 
crunch. They are in the midst of uh, various economic issues. Uh, and I'm just looking at the numbers in front of me, the, the recent floods of 2022, they led to damages accruing a total of $14.9 billion. Additionally, on top of that, the economic losses were estimated to be 15.2 billion. Uh, and the estimates as for the World Bank for rehabilitation and resilient construction was around 16.3 billion. So for a country which is at the moment uh, is negotiating for deals as little as $1 billion, it is practically impossible for them to come up with these sources of financing that would help them deal with the impacts and the repercussions of climate change, which is a global, global phenomenon. And Pakistan being a country which is producing, contributing less than 1% of carbon emissions towards the, towards the global cap, uh, I, mean, I believe it is right to assume that they should not be held responsible. On that note, uh, I would uh, pivot the discussion towards towards you, Sundas, and really ask you, where does what what are multilateral organizations? What are these you know these high income countries doing in terms of uh, for not compensating the losses, but ensuring that you know climate justice is being done? Because many countries are paying the prices of the actions that they had embarked upon many, many years ago, decades ago, centuries ago. Uh, and, you know, our, our foreign ministers, Pakistan's foreign minister, Gravel Bhutto is actually advocating the same. He talks about climate reparation. He's going from one country to the other, and he's putting forth this, uh, this, this agenda, this discussion, that this responsibility should be more shared, or actually should be, the burden should be borne by countries who contributed towards this catastrophe. Uh, so, so this, what, what are your viewpoints, you know, what is being done on the climate financing front, what more can be done, and how important is it for these countries to acknowledge the events that are happening elsewhere in the world? Thank you, Norris. This is an incredibly sensitive and complicated issue, because climate change is very, very unique in the sense that it not only is impacting developing countries like Pakistan in a manner, even within Pakistan, the impacts aren't felt equally across the whole society. So the poorest and most marginalized, such as you can think of um, small farmers, rural communities, women, um, elderly, they are often the ones who bear the brunt of the climate change the most. And they're also the ones that are least protected from the impacts of climate change. So definitely this is a big issue of climate justice. And efforts to promote climate justice have been generally on the rise in the global community. In fact, one of the major impetuses of the 2015 climate conference in Paris was to address this where world leaders came together to commit US $100 billion annually to combat climate change. Now, in reality, I believe only a fraction of that amount has been mobilized. One other point to note is that often in the context of global climate finance flows, climate mitigation is seen as a global public good. It is seen as exactly the, the signs that Nimra just laid out, that when one country or one set of countries is emitting, another set of countries is also facing the brunt of that. So keeping that in mind, climate mitigation was often um, touted as being the key global public good that needed investment and a lot of work has gone into supporting um, renewable investments, for instance, supporting other countries to move towards a low carbon pathway. It's only very recently in very recent years and Pakistan has come as a really big example with the 
most recent floods, that now we, uh, the international community needs to step in for climate adaptation as well. The numbers that you mentioned, I mean, more than 30 billion in economic losses for a country like Pakistan, it's not, it's just not possible for Pakistan to mobilize those numbers within itself. But I will not absolve Pakistan of its own responsibility as well. So definitely stressing the point that we as Pakistanis need foreign direct investment to not only not only a one-off um, event, we will need sustained flows in order to support the communities, in order to support people-centric climate adaptation, which is also something that's a little bit different from the way um, the international community has thought of climate adaptation in the past. But within, within Pakistan, we will also need to be receptive. We will need to have a financial system. We need to have a systematic response to this. We need to align our financial flows to go where they're needed most. Um, we will also need to mobilize domestic revenue, whether that comes from taxes, how that's done, that's a separate story. But we need to improve the efficiency and the targeting of our investments uh, that go towards, uh, towards climate change. And then we as South Asia, especially countries around the Indus Basin, will need to come together because we have um, very similar risks when it comes to um, natural disasters. And if we are able to set up a system where we can pull in our human resources, our technological resources, our financial resources, I think we will be able to um, kind of hedge the risks that are coming um, up from climate change in a better way. Uh, thank you. So I think we're, what we're trying to say and what we've, and it actually makes sense is the fact that though Pakistan may not be contributing to climate change, but the way that the catastrophe is handled, uh, the way putting the population in, you know, when designing, putting the person in front of the policy is very imperative because, again, the adverse impacts, the negative impacts, and the, the, the again, the, the, the issues are being faced solely by populations. Again, it is a, it's, it's especially very diverse. The impacts that are being felt by, let's say, people in Tira Sindh, as we witnessed during the floodings of 2022, are vastly different for those who are, you know, dwelling in more urban areas, such as in Lahore, such as in Islamabad, for instance. Uh, so coming to that point, again, uh, I'll, you know, circle back to you, Nimra. Sundas rightly pointed out that we cannot really absolve Pakistan of the responsibility or even of the blame. Uh, Pakistan, again, while uh, in terms of proportion may not be contributing enough uh, towards global carbon emission, but still there are sectors which are not carbon friendly, which are not climate friendly, sorry. Uh, you know, they're, they're very carbon intensive. And you recently published a paper drawing some uh, correlations among what are the driving factors uh, where Pakistan can improve, you know, finding the, again, the, the relationship between area sectors, industries that tend to further exacerbate the impacts of climate change. So could you just highlight what were your key findings? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's a very good point, Sundas, um, what you just mentioned. While, of course, Pakistan may not be a big contributor to global warming, it is on an upper trajectory of releasing carbon emissions, um, adversely impacting its own regional environment. So there are environmental changes that we are experiencing within the country, within our own borders because of this phenomena. Um, so to your point, Norris, I did analyze and publish um, an article around this um, looking, I took the data from the World Bank Development um, Indicators data set, WDI data set. And as part of my findings, um, I found that Pakistan is heavily reliant on 
dirty fuels like coal, natural gas for generating power, which is the main source of carbon emissions today. Um, manufacturing industries uh, emissions are also releasing more carbon into our atmosphere. Emissions from the combustion of fuel, from transport activity, um, from our residential buildings, our homes has been on the rise since 2010, which is also partly due to population growth. So total population has been on the rise and there was a direct correlation with the CO2 emissions that we've seen over the years, a very high positive correlation between the two factors. Um, this population growth, of course, leads to an increasing consumption of fossil fuel generated services and products, which further releases more carbon into the air. Um, what happens then is that with little kind of economic opportunity in our country found in rural parts um, of, of, of the nation, most residents tend to move to major urban centers um, to, of course, provide for their families, which is leading to unprecedented, very high urbanization rates. This urbanization um, in centers like Lahore, Karachi have been the major cause of loss of vegetation, um, caused a number of environmental problems like air pollution. We've, Lahore has been on, I guess, the has had the worst air pollution over the past few years. Um, this leads to water scarcity. Um, there's loss of biodiversity. All in all, more people will lead to more consumption, um, more cars uh, on the roads, more pollution, um, causing more emissions. So, of course, there has been, uh, there is lack of urban planning, there is mismanagement of resources. Um, but I think looking at this data, uh, policymakers should definitely start to analyze uh, what is happening, what the current state of affairs is and addressing the biggest actors at play uh, to meet our emission, re emission reduction targets. Um, for example, what specifically to flooding that occurred, um, I think our country needs to build a flood control infrastructure such as tide gates to, to just prevent the rising of water. Um, another example would be in California, scientists um, are working on recharging the state's severely depleted groundwater by diverting excessive water into fields and letting the water seep into aquifers, which is something that Pakistan should also consider. Um, communities should be moved off the floodplain industrial, uh, sorry, industrial river floodplain um, and to higher ground to avoid, of course, uh, the impacts. So definitely, so, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, no. So uh, just to your point, so I think uh, what I see is I think two major themes that are uh, uh, brewing out of our discussion. One is the fact that though Pakistan Pakistan is contributing in terms of carbon emissions uh, towards the global tally, but it may not be uh, triggering global climatic events. But at the same time, its actions are impeding the local local environment in terms of air pollution. And then to Sundas's point that, you know, when we're looking at the impacts that people are undergoing through that they're experiencing, the government and the policymakers are failing to address those. They could act preemptively, they could employ the right set of mechanisms in terms of infrastructure, in terms of disaster, disaster and risk management, rehabilitation, uh, that would at least uh, alleviate all uh, you know the, the the various problems that people tend to go through and th those are not smaller problems they are literally like we earlier established that they're disrupting livelihoods 
So on that note, another question for you, Sundas, given that you're working on coastal resilience, you're working on climate adaptation, what are some of the areas and how can Pakistan adapt? A, in terms of the climate change that is happening and B, on the implicit effects of climate change. That is, it is leading to water scarcity. Water is a huge, huge issue. Uh, you know, the food agriculture nexus in Pakistan, it is both a product and a contributor to climate change. Uh, you know, there are other industrial sectors, the energy sectors. How do you think, what are some of the areas where Pakistan has the ability to really optimize and adapt towards the transition to more, more climate friendly growth, climate friendly policies? Thank you, uh, Norris. So Pakistan is at a very critical juncture. I think now is exactly the time where we either rapidly scale up our investments in climate action or we'll be facing even more um, devastating impacts in the years to come. And I say this because no matter which model, uh, which climate model you pick up, it shows Pakistan is having an above average um, warming than the than the world. So um, when Pakistan's best case scenario is the worst case scenario for most of the world, that is really a call to action uh, for, for, for Pakistan to kind of um, see what they need to do. Um, like Nimra mentioned, our infrastructure is not adequately robust. So we need to invest in our infrastructure and make sure that the one in a hundred year events that are now becoming one in 10 year events that are now becoming so commonplace, we're able to respond to that. We need to have a systematic response. And this this won't come from the you know um, few centers that are working on climate change. This will come only when climate change is treated as a development issue and it's cross-cutting throughout. So this is a social protection issue. This is a health issue. This is an infrastructure issue. It's an economic issue. In terms of adaptation, I think while the NDMA, so our um, National Disaster Management Authority, has really done a lot in the past years to kind of um, respond more effectively, that is where I would start to improve our response mechanisms further, to work with the Pakistan Med Department to actually be able to anticipate these extreme weather events and give the appropriate warnings so people who need to evacuate, people who need to respond, um, they, they, they have the time to do so. So this is immediate recovery and response that I'm talking about. But then we need to have really a systematic grassroots community-led um, response, which will then incorporate all the sectors that um, we've already discussed in, in this um, conversation. We get a lot of humanitarian assistance as well, but it's always in the aftermath of, of uh, such an event. So again, some sort of a systematic financial um, mechanism would would also be super useful. Uh, but, so I, yeah, I, I just 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 to further your point, and you can continue. I just wanted to add something uh, which came to my knowledge that Pakistan in twenty twenty one they prepared a nationally determined contribution report, a robust report, and that was presented at COP twenty six, mainstreaming decarbonization, resilience, and green growth. And the figures that I wanted to point out that are in front of me are that. It is estimated that by 2030, the total cost needed to you know, achieve these mainstreaming decarbonization goals are, is, is accumulating $200 billion. And just the transition to cleaner energy is, has been estimated to cost $101 billion. And these numbers are inconceivable. 
for a country like pakistan it is you know we are continually accruing more debt accruing more loss you know the fiscal deficits are growing so it is practically impossible for a country of this stature to find the investment internally uh, of you know of, of of such high numbers and you know back to your point and please continue that you said that um, you know financing these needs the the larger community does need to share the greater responsibility and come in but on the policy side i think there are again there are gaps that pakistan needs to fill in so that it is the environment is conducive enough for greater receptiveness to climate finance correct for instance noise in that you you mentioned the energy sector and also with the agriculture sector which is you know these are the two major sectors of pakistan apart from infrastructure both of them have really environmentally damaging subsidies so this would be another thing where we do an internal reckoning to see that how can we move away from fossil fuels how can we remove these subsidies to make our energy sector more efficient to reduce those transmission and distribution losses which will not only you know um have mitigation co benefits but will also be good for our energy robustness and one thing that we don't even think about is energy resilience um the fact that we in this day and age even with the higher investment that we have done in past years in the energy sector still have so much load shedding still our grid isn't reliable so we need to build that robustness in the system that if there are any climate or natural disaster risks we are still able to kind of have functional power systems um while addressing of course the the losses and while addressing the fact that we because um energy at its core is development so access to energy access to clean energy will be supremely important especially as pakistan still developing pakistan's um uh, pakistan is rapidly urbanizing and its energy needs will only grow and i think it serves a do, sorry uh, again i just want to you know to uh, follow your point i think it serves a dual purpose a because the issue that we are facing the balance of payment crisis the lack of ability to pay for our import bill is the fact that energy is one of our highest imports we don't produce oil we don't produce fossil fuels as such and we're importing natural gas whether that's petroleum things so on and so forth and uh, fossil fuels just by itself it comprises 86% of primary commercial energy use so by being able to really capitalize on that transition we're like i said it serves dual purpose we're able we're cutting you know our our, our current account deficit you know we are producing energy and we have that ability to really invest in solar and we're also transitioning towards you know energy sources which are more environment friendly which are more climate friendly and this is given the background that pakistan has a worsening debt crisis we also need to keep that in mind that we don't want to kind of um deteriorate our macroeconomic situation further so recognizing the role of multilateral banks recognizing the role of governments i also think the private sector has a really big role to play and pakistan can incentivize the private sector more the concessional financing that we get from this these multilateral development banks and other financial institutions can be used to incentivize the private sector to come in and lower the cost in order to make this um make this make renewable energy for instance the uptake of it um be scalable so that's also definitely something that we need to work on 
No, absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out because I was. This is where I was heading towards next. Uh, people in Pakistan, and when I say people, I mean policymakers, the politicians, members of the civil, the um, the, the bureaucracy, the military. They tend to really focus on the economic deceivable. That is the primary focus. What is where we you know we're incapable of growth. Then you know we're targeting it. one. The opposition is targeting the government for high levels of inflation, increases in poverty. And climate change is now increasingly becoming an economic issue. We've just highlighted the numbers, but even beyond that, I think there's 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 a real need to integrate climate climate policies into economic policies. You know, mainstreaming climate into into our into our structural reforms. And uh, you know, you're trying to decarbonize. You're trying to capitalize. You're building you're building resilience, embedding resilience. And how do you do that? You know, it really begs the question. And here, I'd just like to weigh in based on some of the experience that I've done in terms of economic diversification models in various other countries and transitioning towards greener growth. The very first thing is, you know, how do you incentivize, like you mentioned, the private sector? You know, what would encourage the private sector to make that transition towards sectors which are more greener? And it all comes down to, you know, the stick and the carrot approach, carbon, the imposition of carbon tax, you know, recycling rebates, uh, cap and trade mechanisms, such that it is it disincentivizes industries which are high, which are more carbon intensive, and you know tends to you know provide means of access to finance and access to markets, easing business entry for those sectors and firms associated with parts of sectors which are more greener. Uh, I will take the example of China for for instance. China is now increasingly becoming a global leader in battery manufacturing sector and they're looking towards the future uh, that is not the need right now but they're foreseen they've already envisioned that by 2030 by 2040 the people as they you know transcend adopt transform towards renewable energy they need storage mechanisms and you know energy battery storage is a form of industry is a form of sector that is not only green and you know environment friendly but it also serves as a huge potential for economic growth and that is, you know, what is needed. We need to set up, uh, create an enabling environment which is conducive for private sector development and encourages them to adapt to sectors which are more greener. Then another thing, uh, and both Nimra and you've highlighted, you've mentioned is, you know, the, the water scarcity, uh, not just the water scarcity, uh, the agricultural sector, the food, water and agriculture nexus. Now, again, I have this number in front of me and you'll be surprised. We claim that we're an agrarian economy but uh, Pakistan's uh, agriculture water productivity is 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 the lowest is at the lowest dosage globally. That is thirty seven cents per cubic meter. So basically, we're not utilizing, we're not optimizing our water resources, and we're not producing agricultural goods that are either feasible economically in terms of the revenue they're generating, and they're definitely detrimental to the climate. You know, we're talking about wheat subsidy. Uh, we talk about sugar subsidies. Those are not very, uh, you know, growth conducive, good products. And then we, we look towards rice farming. Rice farming, it's a crop which is very water intensive. And Pakistan by 2030, apparently, and these are figures that I have interviewed, very, very robust figures by, based on thorough research by experts in this field. Pakistan will only be able to sustain its share of agricultural water consumption by 2030. After that, if you want to consume, you know, water in agriculture, you'll have you'll be taking it away from other other areas, and the the weakest of all 
are, are, are people are, are you know people who are already facing water shortages, whether that's in rural areas and whether that is in um, you know major cities. So there's there's we just we there's there's a huge potential to capitalize on the GDP growth and intersection of uh, climate friendly policies. So going further, yeah, yeah, yes, please. Norris on agriculture, the agri-food system definitely needs to be transformed. And you mentioned that how it's not super efficient, it's not super productive. And in fact, the yields, agricultural yields are expected to drop by 50% um, by 2050. So that's definitely a big cause of concern. But this sector is still so important because it's our largest employer, especially for the poor and vulnerable communities. So it's not just a sector that provides us with food, it's a sector that provides people with their livelihoods. So as this is diminishing in terms of returns, as our lands are getting degraded, as we are overusing the water, the scarce water resources that we have, we're also putting those people at risk for the, in fact, their livelihoods. So basically as a result of climate change, we are failing to come up with the right set of you know, possibilities that would tend to kind of alleviate the burden on the people. Rather, on the other hand, we are accelerating the impact of climate change. You know, we're trying to, we're, we're making even more adverse by the imposition of, you know, misadventures and mispolicies that are in place. Uh, on that note, I think when we talk about policymaking, there's a lot of ev emphasis on evidence-based, data-driven. So Nimra, coming back to you, you're leveraging data to, you know, design and implement Amazon-led reforms in terms of sustainability. What do you think, what are the areas where Pakistan is lacking in terms of climate-related data or, or, you know, data related to water, food, uh, you know, urbanization? And how can we really leverage um, digitalization technology and data itself to help us aid in this transformation and in the design of effective policy? Yeah, so I think uh, Sundas and you, Norris, you guys addressed uh, the, this question yourselves um, previously. But of course, um, I guess there is an imminent need for policy analysts to start collecting, first of all. So let me take a step back and just mention that while I was looking at the WTI data set for Pakistan specifically, data sparsity would have to be kind of the highlight of my analysis. Unfortunately, there isn't enough data that we are collecting from regional sources, which is how the WGI is um, is is fed. Um, unfortunately, we just don't have the data. For example, I was trying to look at building a predictive model to look at um, precipitation in different uh, regions of Pakistan. So as Sundas mentioned, right, we obviously we have the Indus River flowing from north to south. Um, and of course, communities around that are more susceptible to uh, flood damage. Um, in the future as well, these rainfalls are going to get more and more intense. So I wanted to build that correlation. Um, unfortunately, the data was just missing. Um, there was there was no data for the past 20 years. I was My time period that I was focusing on was 2000 um, to date. Unfortunately, data for 2022, 2021 still has not been updated in the system. Um, so I think just going back and collecting this data is very important for policy analysts. Um, and of course, in once this data is collected um, and it's validated, uh, we of course need to have more data-driven policies in place to curb climate change. Um, I think some of the kind of 
some of the, I guess, key things that uh, policy uh, makers can start addressing is, of course, based on my analysis, controlling population growth. Um, as you guys mentioned, switching to cleaner energy alternatives like solar, wind, um, invest in environmental, environmentally friendly fertilizers as well. Um, since we are an agrarian economy, we want to try and not release nitrogen into um, there as well. Reforestation across urban cities. Um, we want to plan cities better by implementing zoning to allow for more greener zones um, to keep temperature in check. Um, I guess the government should also subsidize zero emission electric vehicles as they are doing across Europe, across other kind of developed nations. Um, so those are some of the kind of, I would say, key things that come to mind by looking at the data that was available. But again, um, there's a lot more that could be done. Yeah, of course. No, thank you for pointing that out. I think it is very imperative to make sure that we have the right data collection mechanisms in place for us to you know, analyze those and come up with some tangible policies. Um, and uh, just moving on just to the last leg of, uh, of this discussion. And I find myself kind of repeating this again and again, but I really want to emphasize uh, as much as I can that climate change, it's, it's not just climate change. It's an economic issue. It's an humanitarian issue. You know, the repercussions are disastrous. They're catastrophic. And at some point or the other, if the right measures are not taken, it will affect each and every one of us, whether, you know, everyone residing through Pakistan. I know there are inter-country disparities, like uh, some just mentioned based on spatial differences. And there's like there are intra-country uh, you know, disparities as well between some countries which are more vulnerable and some countries which are less. But, you know, there's no escape from it until unless there's a timely response. And on that note, you know, for the viewers and everyone who's listening into it, I would want you both to chime in. What can we do at the personal level, at the individual level? You know, obviously we're, we need climate financing. We need this right set of policies. We need the governments to take responsibility. But as an individual, you know, you do not want to just sit and wait and be at the mercy of, you know, policymakers and uh, funders, investors elsewhere. What can you do? So, yeah, please, both of you. I think as individuals, um, yeah, please, yes. we can think about how can we live our own life more sustainably, right? So if we're um, buying appliances, can we opt for energy efficient appliances? Can we reduce our water waste? Can we reduce generally our waste production? Um, how many opportunities do we have to utilize public transport, to, to carpool as we go to work, et cetera? One thing that I will highlight, um, especially noting that that's a particular vice of um, my, my friends and family, opt for a plant-based diet. We don't have to have meat um, as often as we do. It's not good for our health and it's definitely not good for the environment. So if there's one thing that I will uh, encourage people to do less of is think again when you're having your next beef burger. <laughs> I, ho I hope it sits well with the Pakistani audience who are consuming this program. <laughs> And consuming meat. <laughs> That's a very good point, Sundas. Um, I completely agree with all the points that you listed. Um, I think something else that I would like to add is, uh, which I feel is very personal to me, is that we want to try and start the process of recycling um, our waste. Maybe we can try and just compost our food waste that we produce to so just kind of sort out your 
plastic waste versus your food waste maybe in your homes. Very simple to do. Use the food waste scrapes, throw them in your yard. Um, that will actually help with your plantation, your vegetation, everything. So uh, maybe opt for that. Of course, waste like food waste, when you throw it in um, garbage trucks, um, it's going to be dumped into landfills, which will actually produce more methane, which will lead to um, warming of the planet even further. So maybe that's something we can try. <laughs> uh, and this is one more thing that just came to my mind and thinking out loud is I've witnessed in Pakistan, especially in the urban areas, that people tend to wash their transportation vehicles quite a lot. And, uh, you know, one of the, the amplifiers of climate change is the use of non-agriculture water. And I think if we can cut down and not wash our cars or our bikes, you know, every single day, that may really help. Because like I said, Pakistan's groundwater is depleting. Uh, you know, it is making the climate change very much more pronounced. And it is also affecting our local environment. So maybe we can cut that cut that off too. I guess we've covered a lot. We've you know debunked a lot of myths as well. We've traced back as to what is causing climate change at the global level. You know how responsible Pakistan is. Uh, you know the policies in Pakistan can undertake not to maybe impact global climate change, but how to help improve the lives of its population and the citizens who are living within the confines of its boundary. Uh, and the last thing I think, and a very important thing, is that while there's a correlation between GDP and you know carbon emissions, Pakistan can still capitalize on its growth potential without having to uh, you know further intensify uh, carbon emitting activities and rather you know capitalize on decarbonization, building climate resilience, and adopting a human-centered approach. Uh, so thank you so much, both of you. Uh, it was a lovely discussion and I thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope our viewers did too. Thank you, Nares. Thank you.